Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. Our current teaching series is on prayer, and we're basing the talk each week on one line of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Prayer is a somewhat basic tenet of a relationship with the divine, isn't it? But in that a lot of us are aware of our own needs and limitations in whole new ways right now, not to mention the needs of our city, our nation and our world, we thought this might be a good time to look in depth at what Jesus meant when he said, this is how you should pray. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning. This is the second week on our new series on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer being the piece of prose that has been declared the one spoken most in the history of the English language. How on earth we verify those facts, I do not know. But this simple prayer, memorisable by children and yet powerful enough to sustain a whole lifetime of prayer, I think perhaps sometimes familiar enough for us to us though that we can forget this is the clearest instruction we will ever receive on how to converse with our divine creator. Today we're looking at the second line. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This past Wednesday at 5 p.m. I was not in a good place for the church prayer meeting, which is kind of my job to attend. I'd spent the day wrestling with the theology of the kingdom, and by five o'clock, I frankly just wasn't feeling the theology of the kingdom. I was also grieving with some very dear friends of ours who had that day learnt of a very big loss and outcome that we had been praying for quite some time for God to prevent. So I lay down on the floor near Ed, who was, was on the Zoom call, and I was out of sight, and I closed my eyes because I suppose what I do know by now is that prayer helps, even when you can't face speaking to God or other people yourself. And I wasn't wrong. I heard and was powerfully moved by the prayers of my bread family, their sense of what God was saying, their vision for what his kingdom is like, their hope for the church, for unity, for justice, for healing. And what I felt like I heard God say very powerfully to me was, none of this is new to me. And it might seem like an obvious point if you know anything about world history, if you engage realistically with the experience of all Christians throughout the ages. Pain, suffering, pandemics, war, loss, death. There isn't a time or place in history that we can look to that doesn't reveal the huge cracks in the cosmos. The world just does not work like it should. The kingdom of God that we are told to beckon in with prayer is not yet, has not arrived. Who of us is not very clear on that right now? But none of this is new to me, didn't sound indifferent, like he's up there on his throne shrugging his shoulders. Humanity, it's always been this way. It sounded like compassion and care and heartbreak that I have long since known to be God's tender voice for his precious world that is not working like it should do. It wasn't indifferent, it was full of compassion and it made me feel safe and belonging again. Because I remembered what his kingdom is like, 
what his will is and what heaven is. And what Jesus, including this line at the start of his prayer instructions, necessarily implies that his will is not always done. We need to pray it because it isn't naturally happening. And to whatever extent the kingdom still needs to come and his will needs, still needs to be done, we can actually do something about it in prayer, which of course raises some important questions. So let us start by agreeing what the kingdom is and what it is not. We're not talking about an afterlife and we're not talking about something that's already fully here, as we've said. The kingdom is not really a place. The kingdom is not a people. The kingdom, very simply put, is where God reigns. But we can also think of it as a story. A story that started with the Spirit of God hovering over the primordial soup of nothingness at the beginning of time. That took a huge change of direction when the same God became human, lived among us, and ushered in a new era when he died and rose again. This is such a subtle but very important point. Jesus didn't just come to restore him to him, himself. He also came to show us what his kingdom looks like. Not just to die and resurrect, but also to live, to show us this life in how he spent it and who he spent it with. Jesus' life shows us everything we'll ever need to know about what the kingdom looks like. His teaching, his healing, his love, his protests, his anger, his grief, his reach, his company, his touching of those he wasn't supposed to want to touch, let alone eat with or drink with, his subversive fearlessness in the face of authority, his forgiveness, his grace, even, as we're going to examine today, the way that he announced this new era. I suppose this is a bit of a tangent, but I think this is one of the most important pieces of pastoral advice that Ed and I can give you right now. In the middle of what I know feels like to many of us the most important election race of our lifetimes. But kingdom people do not take sides. We are not red or blue. We are peacemakers. We are grace bearers. We are justice bringers and space holders. We are resistors of the divisive, poisonous ways of this world. I do not mean don't engage. Definitely vote. I don't mean don't grieve the injustice and abuse and don't share in God's feelings about those things. And I don't mean don't become activists, allied with political parties as those causes may be. Activists for justice and mercy and care do all those things. Certainly, I am not saying sit this out. Politics is our business because people are the business of the kingdom. We can't pray your kingdom come without acknowledging the kingdom requires action. But we are not red or blue. We are peacemakers. We are called to stand in the position where both sides say it is not okay to stand, in the middle, and know that every single member of every single political position or party is a child of the Most High God. On heaven as it is in earth means resisting the way the world works, resisting all of this, 
resisting the abuse of our fears. Do you know how badly our neurocircuitry is being abused by these forces right now? We have ancestral predisposition to see our survival as dependent on our ability to barricade ourselves from outsiders. The us and them mechanism occurs in our prefrontal cortices within a hundred and seventieth, seventy thousandth of a second. Instantaneous bias occurring subconsciously from primordial wiring that is constantly working to attribute positive assumptions to anyone on our side and negative assumptions to the others. And this is being pillaged by money-driven algorithms to feed you news stories that will confirm your fears about other. This is how this is working for us. This is why Facebook makes you feel the way you feel, that your side is right and their side is wrong. This is why your news outlet doesn't cover the other side of the story, because we are happy when our fears are confirmed by what we hear. Yes, I watched The Social Dilemma this week. Yes, I immediately deleted all of my social accounts. And yes, I'm very much in the cold turkey withdrawal phase. Thank you for your prayers. There is no political party who gets to claim Jesus, and I know both try to. All the way of his kingdom is their battle cry, because his kingdom says you first. His kingdom whispers, it doesn't scream, it listens, it holds the door, it falls on the sword, it doesn't fight to be right. And I know this doesn't sound practical in the middle of all this mess, but it is the truth as a matter of the theology that we must agree on. And unfortunately, as Jesus followers, this is the only battle cry we have except it was always meant to be whispered with tenderness and grace and compassion and acceptance. If you're arguing with me in your head, if you are quite sure I haven't heard your argument for how you, you should support your party or your reason to demonise the other one, then please know we are cut from the same cloth. I wrestle with this truth that I am preaching right now as much as anyone else because we are of this world. And this is possibly one of the most unnatural kingdom things. But it is the one that Jesus showed us how to live and the one that he calls us to, in oneness. The fact is, the way of his kingdom was as alien to people in Jesus' day as it is to us today. So as well as showing his followers what it looked like by the way that he lived, he also taught on the kingdom more than anything else. In fact, he mentions it 126 times in the Gospels. His favourite way to speak about the kingdom is through parables. Now, we may have been taught to understand these like they're simple illustrations or allegories, but actually to his original listening ears, Jesus' parables are designed to tease, to mess with, to dress up the revolutionary message about God's kingdom in language that would leave them trying to figure it out for ages. They really weren't straightforward or simple. If a parable ever confuses you, says N.T. Wright, author of most of the kingdom theology you'll ever need to read, start by asking, what is this teaching us about Jesus' bringing of his kingdom? So here are these three now from a section in the middle of Matthew where Jesus is answering this question about his kingdom to a crowd who was very much expecting a different kind of king. Thanks, Nicole. Jesus told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. The crowd that Jesus is speaking to wants to be made great again. That's what they're here to hear about from this would-be Messiah. The crowd wants to hear about their rescue as a nation from Roman rule, from Herod the Clown's oversight, they are downtrodden and they are tired of waiting. This was supposed to be their moment. The arrival of the kingdom and its king, it was supposed to happen with an overt display of political and militaristic might. And this section of parables in Matthew 13 is where Jesus speaks to this expectation with clarity. And to describe the power of his kingdom, he calls upon the ordinary, the small, Seeds, crops, yeast. These are stories told in the language of men who typically worked in agriculture and women who typically performed domestic chores, language that they spoke fluently. This isn't going to be the fanfare kingdom. The kingdom of God is going to be wheat among weeds left to grow like that in the field. The kingdom of God is like tiny mustard seeds, the tiniest of all seeds that will eventually become big and full of branches, enough to make a home for all the birds. The kingdom of God is a tiny morsel of yeast, seemingly engulfed and consumed in this larger lump of dough, but will transform it as it permeates, making it rise, making it grow, feeding the hungry. A kingdom that's gonna start out small and all but hidden, it would in fact be three centuries before Jesus' teaching was adopted by anyone with significant power. So too with the gospel. These various depictions all to say, the coming of the kingdom wasn't gonna be swift and powerful and conclusive. It is coming, but slowly and gradually, present in its beginning and yet hidden. This is an all but undercover kingdom not the manifestation of God's rule and these people's chosenness that they desperately wanted to hear about. Not what the crowd expected or wanted, not what Jesus' closest friends expected or wanted. John the Baptist even questioned the kingdom logic and Jesus' kingly identity when imprisoned. It's okay if this way of the kingdom is hard for us to get our heads around. John the Baptist didn't even get it clearly. None of this is new to God. 
the kingdom is quite difficult for us to get our heads around. A kingdom that knows, in the words of the late, great Rachel Held Evans, no geographical boundaries, no political parties, no single language or culture, that advances not through power and might, but through acts of love and joy and peace, missions of mercy and kindness and humility. This kingdom has arrived, not with a trumpet sound, but with a baby's cries, not with the vanquishing of enemies, but with the forgiving of them, not on the back of a horse, but on the back of a donkey, not with triumph and conquest, but with a death and resurrection. And yet there is more to this kingdom that is still to come. So we keep praying for it to come on earth as it is in heaven, when every tear will be wiped from every eye, when justice will cascade like a river down a mountain and righteousness like a never-ending stream, when people from every tribe and every tongue and nation will live together in peace, when there will be no more death. Without a parable, he told them nothing. I kind of love that line in our passage. He speaks in parables because the truth of the kingdom is too complex and otherworldly to be fully revealed. If the kingdom of God were something we could grasp in a sentence, we'd turn it into a mantra, we'd tattoo it on our forearms, we'd post it on our billboards, and we'd demand that everyone else followed it. We'd raise it up, our truth. We'd make it a colour. We'd shout it from those rooftops. We'd divide ourselves up between those who get it and those who don't. And we'd forget all about the donkey. It's wild to think, if you ever stop and think about Jesus returning, which I'd recommend doing in moderation. Current hilarity of apocalypse jokes notwithstanding. But everything Jesus showed us about the meekness of his kingdom, the humility of his kingdom, the you first, the quiet, gracious way of his kingdom, is that it probably won't be a war horse this time either. He probably won't come back of a with a battle cry of, we finally won! If he uses anyone in this process, it's quite likely not going to be world leaders or Hollywood celebrities or the really beautiful people. It'll probably be the other kind of people, the forgotten, the broken, the lost, the ones who always knew how badly they needed him. Where does this leave us then? Inside this unfinished story between the primordial soup and the inauguration of the kingdom and its final coming, between what Jesus has done when he caused the whole cosmos to turn a corner from darkness to light, and what is to come when we actually get to live there? Our task, very simply, is to see every day how our story is linked to the kingdom story. How we, as his people, his yeast, his mustard tree, his stem of wheat surrounded by a field of weeds, are to pray and to live out this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done to look up into the face of our Holy Father in heaven so that we can look immediately on the whole world that he made and see it like he sees it, to see it as Wright again puts it, in God's binocular vision of on the one hand his love, his feelings about the goodness of his creation, its beauty, its wonder, but the, on the other hand his deep 
grief for this battered and battle-scarred state in which the world now finds itself in. Love and grief. We can't pray the Lord's Prayer without knowing both sides of his experience when he looks at the world. And we pray for redemption, for the radical defeat, for the end to all evil, of all, end of all pain and all suffering, for heaven and earth to finally be married at last, for God to be all in all, your will be done, is the battle cry of a kingdom because it knows God's will. God's will for peace, for mercy, for humility and love. And every act that we make for the kingdom, every yeasty kiss of grace, every door we hold, every sword we fall on, every last word we give up, every time we say you first, we are doing something to bring that kingdom about, to infect this world with its otherworldly way. Here are some beautiful words by Frederick Buechner about the kingdom. If we only had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God is as close as breathing and is crying out to be born within ourselves and within the world. The kingdom of God is what we, all of us, hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse at it in those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. We catch sight of it at some moment of crisis when some strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home. So, as we always do, let's end by inviting the Spirit to come. All these words mean nothing without his presence and his power. As Paul puts it, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. The power is his, not ours. The power to reveal all this. The power to bring any of this about. The power to bring peace in the middle of this storm. The power to comfort us in the middle of our grief the power to heal our broken hearts and our broken bodies. It is the Spirit of God who sustains us through this dark night when the kingdom seems so far away. He is the one who whispers, we're going to get there. He is the one who reminds us how to pray when we forget it. Come Holy Spirit. As we listen to this song now, I would invite you just to, to keep praying that, come Holy Spirit. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Please do join us for Zoom prayer after the service, we'll be there and we'd love to pray with you. In the glory of your I find rest for my soul in the day.
makes me whole. I love, I love, I love your presence. I love, I love, I love your presence. I love, I love, I love you, Jesus. I love, I love, I love your Oh, oh, oh.